This is the most metal thing I ever did, at least according to a few people in our monthly story circle. It took a while to find parking. I hadn't thought of that. Plus, we had two cars we'd each driven, and that made it harder. It was just before seven at night, but it was deep January, like very much night and overcast, so that the snow reflected up against the cloud cover and everything was gray. Susan Cram, with whose permission I'm telling this story, Susan Cram and I stepped onto the sidewalk to cross the park on the west side of Lakeshore Drive. I was holding the coffee can of ashes. Earlier that morning, Susan had texted to say, if you haven't already scattered Bob's ashes, today would be a good day. And I hadn't. Bob's ashes had been sitting in our office on a top shelf for a couple of months, ever since, uh, ever since we had that museum of breakup service. You know, people shared artifacts from past relationships. There was a watch from a first not-quite-boyfriend, and a headband from a brief fling with running, and a Valentine's card for a sweetheart that never got sent. And then there was Susan. Susan decided that she had a couple of items that she was ready to be rid of. Like, she didn't want only to talk about them, but to hand them off because she was ready to be done with them. So I took the items, including the coffee can of Bob's ashes. And uh, because of something I learned thanks to Susan, as a matter of fact, I didn't get rid of them right away. And I told her I wouldn't. We are basically at the end of the Christmas story. I mean, we're at the beginning of it now. Christmas hasn't happened yet. And also it happened to the extent that it happened a long time ago. So here's what happened where we are in the story tonight. Jesus has already been born, and he's still an infant, and his parents, who are observant religious people, travel from a little town of Bethlehem to Jerusalem to do the rituals of purification and to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the baby. So they get to the temple, they purchase a sacrifice that they could afford on a sliding scale provided in Leviticus, which is a couple of pigeons or two turtle doves. This is the beginning. This is the first time Jesus is in the temple. This is the first time he cried while he was in Jerusalem. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout and looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't see death before he had seen God's anointed. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what is customary under the law, Simeon took him into his arms and praised God. It's like one of the olds holding the baby. It's like a, it's like a Getty stock image of like fat little baby hand and like a wrinkled hand of the elder. And Simeon sings a song to God. Now you are dismissing your servant in peace. I've seen it. Salvation for all people. And then he looks at Mary and he says, here's the end of the story. And Mary blanches and goes still while Simeon says, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. A whole life telescoped in a sentence. The scene blurs and and rushes forward, and we're, we're toward the end of the story. Jesus, a grown man, charismatic and resolute, gentle and a blowhard. He cried on his way into the city this time, too. He wailed when he got into the temple and saw that the sliding scale had become a gouge against the people. When he saw that the house of prayer had been transformed into a den of thieves, the whip 
fashioned the tables, overturned the men in the corner scheming to clamp down on a grassroots movement that might draw the attention of the empire, the sermons that week, the growing momentum, the meal, the arrest, the sham trials designed to convict, the torture, the brutal death, a spear in his tender side, his fat little baby stomach all out of proportion the way they are over their little frog legs, Mary Blanche's, and reaches for the baby to take him back from Simeon. Susan and Bob worked together. That's how they met. They were friends first with a significant age difference, and everything that happened later was unexpected. Bob died after a hard illness during which Susan took care of him. So she and I started to walk through the park to get to the lakefront, and we were talking uh, about how the coffee can he was in was from his favorite kind of coffee, and, and I asked, why today? It was his birthday, she said. January 17. And how long has it been since he died? And if I remember, it was like seven years. And then the question of whether it is legal to spread someone's ashes at the lake came up. Oh, it's definitely illegal, I said. And Susan was like definitely surprised. Like she kind of like stopped walking a little bit. Should we, like, do you want to do it, she asked. Oh, 100%, I said. Like I'm a rule follower, but this is not a law I care about at all. And that, according to the story circle, or at least Nathan, is the most metal thing I've ever done. <laughs> or like the beginning of the most metal thing. So we're walking across this park, and on the way I realized that the big wall down to the lake would be just like covered in ice, so that spreading Bobby's ashes in the lake would boil down to us like dumping his ashes on the icy steps. And I said as much to Susan, and we didn't care about that either. So we walked under Lakeshore Drive, and we crossed that field just south of Foster, and we climbed down over like the first big step of the wall, and we decided that was good enough. And Susan opened the coffee can and took out the plastic bag, and she let Bob go. And she had queued up a song on her phone. I was like, can we, can we listen to this? And, and so we stood there. And we listened to the one big hit by the Ides of March, Vehicle. You know, it's all, it's all horn section and exuberance and a chorus that wraps up, Great God in heaven, you know I love you. I know it's kind of a creepy song, Susan said. Wait, why is it creepy? Well, she said the first line is, I'm a friendly stranger in the black sedan, hop inside my car. But she said we, we rode to work together at first, and then Bob later would always sing it to me. So maybe not the end of Susan and Bob's story, but definitely like part of the end is me and Susan standing by the dark lake listening to that song. Simeon's song, by the way, was also creepy. Like it is definitely creepy to hold someone else's baby and prophesy to its parents, full stop, but also specifically to prophesy about the, how the baby is going to be a sign that will reveal the inner thoughts of many people, also creepy. And then as a bonus to tell its mother that she will be run through with a sword. It's creepy enough that the author of Luke offers a lot of caveats when introducing the character. Simeon's righteous, he's devout, the spirit of God rested on him, Simeon was guided by God's spirits. Spirit, in other words, he's not just some creepy old guy slash friendly stranger. He's a creepy old guy slash friendly stranger who you can trust, even if Mary wasn't in a position to know it in the moment. And some people think of Simeon's hard word to her in the way that I did here, like a jump cut to the end. It's going to be bad. 
And some other people make a big deal out of saying it's not only that. It's, it's that the ways that Jesus was and is is so divisive. That would bear down on, on Mary, too, just like everyone else who ever met him. He was still a baby when people she didn't even know started weighing in on her kid and telling her what they thought of him and what she was supposed to feel about it. And by the time they got to the temple, she already knew that other people were going to be invested in Jesus. Strangers had been showing up since he was born, tremulous with reverence for her infant. Simeon wasn't the first, and he far from the last. And, and in some ways, even in that way, actually, her kid was just another kid. With people invested in who he'd become and people reading onto him the things that they needed and hoped for. There were more people with a stake in him than anyone ever knows at the beginning. Not all of whom, for him as well as us, are as trustworthy as Simeon. People who hated or feared what he turned out to be. People with their own agenda. I don't know, in that way that it's possible that the most metal thing that Mary ever did is no more or less what any of us do, like loving other people and knowing damn well, as clearly as if someone had sung it to us, that in the end a sword will pierce us will pierce us with grief or loneliness or longing or rage at injustice that costs people their lives, will pierce us with loss, with loving what every second goes away. That's the project we're born into. The thing I learned from Susan had to do with a much more mundane project, which was cleaning out a closet. Um, the number of boxes that remained unopened in between moves had grown in my life to be too many, but I couldn't bring myself to get rid of it, like just junk, or like the detritus of a human life or whatever. There were like grade school assignments and photos and memorabilia, and Susan hooked me up with a person who was starting her own organizing business. And she, in one of the most shameful moments that I've ever paid for, which is almost definitely tonight's hashtag. <laughs> she stood there and watched while I sorted through my memorabilia. That's what I paid for. That and for her to take it away at the end of our session. And that's when I learned the new thing. I'm going to keep this in my car, she told me, for a week before I do anything with it. That way, if you change your mind, you can just let me know. That's brilliant, I thought. Even though I know what she's doing, it's working and I let her walk out the door with my things. So when Susan gave Bob to me, I told her I'd hang on to him for a while just in case, and that's how it happened that I still had his ashes on his birthday when she texted. The project that we are born into ends with our being pierced through somewhere along the way, definitely. And that is the project that God chose to be born into also but all for the sake of the same thing that makes it all so dangerous. Mary, run through with a sword because she loved him. Us, pierced by losing what we love, by fear of losing what we love. God, pierced by the anguish of what they love. It's enough to make you fucking scream. James Root plays the guitar in Slipknot, a band that we have now sung more in church than I could have ever imagined at the beginning of this church. Theirs was the song in a playlist this week whose video I would describe as terrifying and possibly grotesque. Uh, but talking about the band's music, he has like a very relaxed voice. He seems like a super nice guy. Talking about the band's music, he said, 
I think a lot of people just by nature lean toward what they perceive to be the dark side of things. You know, like if you're going through a really bad breakup, what do you do? You listen to depressing music, which is ironic because you think you'd want to listen to something to pull you out of that depression. But as human beings, we just tend to lean toward the other. And I don't know if that's everyone or just Slipknot or Slipknot fans or what, but Jim went on to say that at least he always has this sort of teenage angst that I don't think will ever probably go away. And that's how I relate to it. He said, it's like there's always something, man. There's always something in life. It's never going to get easier. And it's songs like ours and lyrics like these that just kind of make you, you don't feel so isolated and alone. It's like, okay, I'm not the only one. He says he thinks their lyrics are a lot more hope and perseverance than darkness. I think it's possible that the same is true for the sword that pierces Mary, like the sword that pierces us and pierces God. The love that can lay us open is the same love that gathers us up and stitches us back together. The love that renders us vulnerable to pain makes of us communities that can help us heal, where we can hold on to things for each other, grief and pain and joy and celebrations and birthdays and anniversaries of getting sober and the date that your person died. Communities that, like an infant God, can elicit love and nurture our tenderness. And communities that remind us, oh, actually, that's not the end of the story. Standing in the dark by the lake the crucifixion, that's not actually where the thing ends. That's the beginning. Again. And starting there, again, that's the most metal thing any of us can do.